You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. So at the sound of the gate opening, all the prisoners rushed to the bars and started looking. The noise was so loud. The sounds of them pushing against bars, pushing against each other, the screech of everyone talking at once. Jadid, Jadid, Arabic for new one. I desperately wanted to cover my face. For more than a decade, I'd fought with my family, fought with my ex-husband, fought with my society not to cover my face. My face is my identity. No one will cover it. I'm proud of my face. If my face bothers you, do look. Turn your own face away. Take your eyes off me. If you are seduced by merely looking at my face, that is your problem. Do not tell me to cover it. You cannot punish me simply because you cannot control yourself. But now, passing through the, this crush of women, I wished I were real. Manal Al-Sharif was born in Mecca, Saudi Arabia in 1979, and after earning a computer science degree, she was the first Saudi woman to work in information security in the kingdom and was hired by the Saudi Aramco Oil Company. In 2011, she was imprisoned for driving a car and charged with driving while female. She's the mother of two sons, and she's now a leading women's rights advocate. Her new book is Daring to Drive, A Saudi Woman's Awakening. Thank you for joining me, Manal. Thank you for having me here. This is a really beautiful journey, and for all the things that happen to you from that are subjected to you from without, the big journey for me was the journey you make from within, inside yourself, the person you were born to, the person you were molded to, and the person you became. So talk about being brought up in Saudi Arabia. It's 1980, 1981. What was it like for you? Um, as you said, the hardest was to break the chains within. And that was a long journey. The chains were not there at the start. Mm-hmm. We, so how did that happen? I mean, you, could you talk about that? And I think that's really interesting. I was born 79, as you mentioned. And that year, I call it the year of trouble, where the siege of Mecca happened, where, where a group of radical Muslim Islamists or jihadists, they took over the holy mosque or the grand mosque, which is the holiest shrine for Muslims around the world. Uh, they closed the gate. They took hostages over 120,000 pilgrimage in the holiest place for Muslims around the world. So the kingdom was uh, in shock, in deep shock and trauma. And the king had to meet with the clerics, with the ulama. And they, he asked them permission because you cannot shoot a gun in the holy ground, which is Mecca. You cannot have a fight. He asked her permission to use heavy weaponry to end the siege. And that came with a price. So when they gave him the permission, they said, you provoke them. There is a lot of easy things, uh, you're, um, a lot of restriction on Islamic laws and rules in the society that became loose. And you need to take the country back to the real Islam, 
which means the the, the strict and ultra conservative interpretation of the Isla- Islamic the Sharia law, which is called the Wahhabi Salafist version of Islam. So the country, because of that encounter in '79, the year I was born, it became more restrictive when it comes to women, when it comes to the literal tra- interpretation of the Islamic texts. The country literally went back in time. This is the generation I grew up with, or this is my generation. We grow up um, in ultra-conservative society where there is this heavy preaching for the for the Islamic text, the literal interpretation of the Islamic text that did radicalize a whole generation. That's the generation of the 80s and the 90s. The same time, there was the uprise of the Shia in Iran. It was the year 79, the revolution happened. And also there was the Afghan war. It happened in the 80s. And more and more youth of my country were encouraged to join the holy war against the infidels. That was, that was the era that I, brought, I was brought up to. And that was the era that put all these chains, chains I would say, and restrictions on us as women. They were chains that worked well, even from within with, with you. You talk about um, as a child, you were just subjected to unimaginable abuse, I think, by the decree of your society. And I'm I'm sure you've heard this before, but as I read this book, I could only think of The Handmaid's Tale. If somebody would have told me that this is the latest dystopian fiction by Margaret Atwood, I would have said, yep, sounds about right to me. <laughs> I heard this before. <laughs> uh, my girlfriend, Chisadi, and she said, listen, you have to watch this new show on Hulu. The similarities will get under your skin. I'm watching now the first episode out of uh, curiosity. Uh, I think that uh, when I when I, as I was reading this book, what I liked was that you don't cut yourself any slack when you are when you are under the thumb of the kind of uh, hyper anti-feminist uh, rule that seems to guide Saudi society, government, and religion. It's a three-pronged approach. It comes from everywhere. You thought it was good, and at one point, you decided that you would become more conservative than your family, and you were began hectoring them. Uh, you took that extra step beyond the um, the adherent. So, talk about making that transition to being becoming really radicalized. I think it's very important point you're raising here because we are seeing today with all this open society, free access to information, we are witnessing radicalizing to the youth. And it's really dangerous. And it's puzzling that's happening today. But at that time, we really had no source of information, but whatever the government was willing. And to keep power, the government had to please the religious establishment. And to please the the religious establishment was to enforce more strict laws on women. So the Grand Mufti, which is like the Pope for Christianity, was the one writing our own curriculum. They were in charge of writing their curriculum for women education. We had the the preaching and the indoctrinate, the, I would say the hate ideology uh, was everywhere. The hate against the infidels, uh, going to the holy war, 
to uh, rescue your own brothers and sisters, the Muslims. And we were going through this whole war. We think it's war on Islam because we had the Bosnia-Herzegovina, we had the Afghan war, we had the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. It was all over us. The Burmese, the Rohingya, the Muslim Rohingya in Burma. So we were brought up this way. And some people were prone to being radicalized and some people were immune. I think I was one of the people that were in prone. Um, is it the right word, prone? Mm-hmm. Yes. So my sister and my brother, they've been radicalized short time of their life and they lift it, they lift that. So my sister, she even she covered her face for uh, some period of her life. Even my mom and dad. But maybe I was the one who uh, went through it this period of my life the longest. And it was to show that you're a good Muslim you have to follow and devote Muslim. You have to follow these strict laws and enforce it when you go back home. So we're taught in the school that when you see a sin, you have to, t- to change it with your hand. You have to use action to change it. So I would, I would burn my brother's cassettes. I would burn my mom's newspaper, I mean magazines, because it had women pictures on them. I burned my own sketches because I used to love to do portraits. That was how hard... Uh, line, I would say, the the rhetoric, rhetoric, rhetoric mm-hmm. that we've been through growing up in that society, especially Mecca was one of the most conservative cities in Saudi Arabia. I, I thought it was just the scene where you burned your own drawings was really heart-wrenchingly powerful because you are seeing yourself... I guess what's interesting is the perception. On one hand, you're showing us your young self who's devout. Devout, yeah. Devout, yes. Wants to uh, obey everything, but you are no longer devout and you understand the absurdity uh, of the rules that are imposed on women in Saudi Arabia. So you do a great job of showing yourself observing living to an absurd standard which is really difficult it was it's it was very painful because it never felt right to me and the more i tried to follow like literally the rules to become a good muslim and to be in god's heaven and to save myself and my family from god's hell it was the more miserable i became it strikes me, I mean, there are so many traps. For for example, um, uh, your your father, Abuya, cut off your, your landline um, there, so that you couldn't talk to, to anybody from the outside world. You're not allowed to see any outside, outside world. You live in the sunniest climate in the world, but there are hardly any windows in your life. That's an it's just astonishing, the, the list of things. It's all to make women invisible. There is this fear of women. Mm-hmm. There is this fear that the, the women in my society corrupt and seduce men. So there is always this control over their bodies and control over their lives. This is why today we have the guardianship system where an adult woman like myself, a mother of two, educated and working, I don't have say in my own life. I'm considered minor before the law, until this day, until the day I die. So there's this fear. And it's more, uh, the embodiment of fear from woman shows over her body, really, the control over her body. She should not speak 
with men because her voice is awra or sinful. It could seduce men. She could not show her face because the face could seduce men. My mom and mother wouldn't call me with... So most society women, we don't know their names. The, the, my work colleagues, when I worked with men, I never knew their wife's names. They would never tell me his wife's name. A boy would be harassed and bullied in the school if they knew his mother's name. They would use it to harass him and bully him, that we know your mother's name. So even the name became sinful. So we are we're invisible, voiceless, faceless, nameless. Not you. Not me. <laughs> I was. I was uh, for, part of my life. Yes. Well, um, now I want you to talk about that trans, those transformative moments. It didn't happen overnight. I mean, no. so uh, how, what was the, the first point that you can remember that um, set you down the path away from this, the super strict a jihadi mentality, because you really were a jihadi. You saw you, a project of terrorist. Yeah, I call myself. Yeah, because I was v- very supportive of all the jihadis who go out to protect Islam. I was big supportive and pro jihadis at that time, and most of jihadis were, by the way, it wasn't only me. That's one of the things I think that's so interesting is that the entire basis for Saudi society. I mean. Looks an awful lot like an ISIS playbook. <laughs> okay. Uh, I, I, growing up with all these very strict rules and laws back home brought a lot of grief, mm-hmm. a lot of contradiction, a lot of conflicts mm-hmm. that were happening between the liberals, people who kept uh, their liberal beliefs. They were uh, ostracized from the society mm-hmm. and it's interesting the the most famous Saudi blogger is a woman called Iman Nafjan she talks about it when she wrote a review for my book and she said because I grew up in a liberal family I was ostracized and the other kids were not allowed to play with me because I, could, I would corrupt their beliefs so even when you are liberal you're really surrounded and cornered so you cannot voice your views because the 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 ultra-conservative culture was very brutal, and it won't allow you to be to think out of the group. You have to follow the group, otherwise you are ostracized. And, and this is a culture, too, that thrives on lack of communication. Such a culture can only thrive on lack of communication. As long as you don't know what anybody else is doing or what's happening elsewhere, you have a lot less to question. Yes. We did question, actually. Mm-hmm. I had a lot of question, but it was always it was always shushed and in- discouraged. I always question my teachers, mm-hmm. but when you question, I love those parts because <laughs> you weren't happy about it. I was not. So I remember the day my devout American Muslim friend she murdered my Barbie. So the Barbie was the only connection I kept from the time when I was not radicalized and mm-hmm. I was not. Uh, extremist Muslim. And that Barbie was a precious deal. It was so not... precious to me. And when she when she destroyed my bar- Barbie, I walk in the room and I found my Barbie into pieces. It was so beautiful thing that I had that I went to, to extend trouble to get that Barbie because it was not allowed in my city. I had to smuggle it from Egypt under my clothes as a child. Imagine, as a child, you learn how to do these things because it was so precious to me. That was painful. And f- encounters like this really make you think, 
why? That question was always there at the back, bothering me. And the more I tried to make everyone happy, the society, the religious people, my teachers in the school, the more I was unhappy. One of the most powerful parts of the book unfolds in two very, I mean, separated parts. You describe the own process of of uh, what happened to you as a as a child, um, female genital mutilation, and you talk about what happened to you in even more extreme versions. So I'd like you to comment just about writing about that, which is really terrifying just to read, and it must have been terrifying to write. But I think when you come back to it and you confront your father over this, that is a really powerful moment. <coughs> no, no, I'm I, mine. I, well, I'm, I'm sorry to, to ask such a... No, don't worry about it. I want to talk about it. Okay, well... Uh, which part do you want me to talk about it? Well, let's talk about... Um, you write a, a passage in the book. You describe what happened to you as a child um, as part of becoming a woman. Here in America, we've referred to it as female genital mutilation. It is called FGM. And FGM. So talk about writing about that and at, from the, your the perspective you have now, which is broken free of a lot of chains. And that was one of the chains that bound you, wasn't it? That was the last chain I think I broke when I wrote the book. Writing the book was a kind of therapy to me because that was one memory from my childhood I locked, I locked. I didn't talk about it with anyone. I didn't discuss it with anyone, only when I had to. And it took me around two weeks on tears to be able to write what exactly happened to us. And it shocked me that I remembered even the clothes I was wearing. Although I locked it all these years, for 30 years I locked it to be able to speak about it. And when I wrote it, um, I was having still the question, why mom and dad did this to us? I didn't understand. Until I wrote a beautiful book written by Muna Tahawi called Hymens and Headscarves, Why the Arab World Needs a Sexual Revolution. And she explained the extent of the social pressure the families go through to keep the hymens of their daughter, to protect their virginity, because the honor of the family depends on that. And you can tell from the story when mom, she vowed to fast Monday and Thursday of every week for the rest of her life. When she found out that we are still virgin, when she found out that our neighbor um, sexually harassed us, but he could not, our virginity was intact. When she found out that, this is the extent families in my society go through to protect their daughter's virginity. The, I, the whole, I think, I guess, edifice of what's surrounded around women in Saudi Arabia, Arabia I mean, this is, uh, this, it's, it, it's meant to protect them, I think, on one hand, but it's really a very elaborate jail and a device of mental torture, I think. Uh, we use the hashtag, the one that to, fought, to end the male guardianship. We call it Stop Enslaving Saudi Women. Because what is happening today is enslaving 9 million people. 9 million women in my country are enslaved. 
no matter how they sugarcoat it, no matter how they say women have the rights, they go to school, they are working now, there are enhancements happening, I disagree. Unless the government recognizes me a full, as a full citizen, unless the government name an age where I become a full adult before law, I'm still not a citizen in my own country, and this should stop. And uh, we were discussing yesterday, a lot of girls, because of the book, are coming out now, Saudi girls coming out today and speaking. I'm like, this is what I really wanted to do, give hope. We were all in the dark. We didn't see each other. Now, more and more, because of this book, girls are shouting and saying, I'm here, and I exist. And we're hoping to create a, a organization where I can provide therapy, uh, uh, financial support, and legal support to a lot of girls are reaching out to me today. They say, we came to the U.S. to study. We cannot go back. Most of them are applying for asylum. This craziness should stop. It seems to me, you know, I had never thought about that before, but given what I read in there, I would say any woman who currently resides in Saudi Arabia could easily ask for asylum in the United States. I mean, it, it's a repressive regime devoted to torture. So it's I, I, I wouldn't say it's all bad because when I worked in Aramco, it was good. Mm-hmm. I had a job. I was very independent and I was helping my family. I mm-hmm. lived them from poverty. It's just a problem that we as a woman, uh, we're still cannot use the legal system to protect us. We're not protected. Mm-hmm. It's still the attitude toward women. This is what needs to be changed. The women themselves, when they internalize that she is weak, that she is not worth it, and she's guilty if there is any abuse happening in the relationship, and she still think, I need uh, a guardian uh, p- uh, permission or a guardian protection. This is what I really want it to change. Let me tell you something about Saudi women. The education of women in Saudi Arabia started in the 60s, and it was a big war. The deputy prince himself had to send a tank to the first female-only school that was open in Ghazni. Wow. So the government went to the extent to support women education in my country. Mm-hmm. We have more women in colleges than men. We have more women uh, graduate from higher education master degrees and professors than men. So they invest so much in our education. But then 14% of the workforce are women. We are only 14% of the workforce. So you invest so much in my education, but at the same time, you don't give me the opportunity. There is this huge potential that is untapped because of the, I would say, they want to please the ultra-conservatives by more rules you put on women, you're pleasing them, and it's kind of keeping the power. Your power is by pleasing them, and pleasing them is by putting more restrictions over women. Do you believe I used to buy my own underwear from a man because women were not allowed to work as a salesperson? She was not allowed to work in the laundry shop or the place where I buy my own underwear. So this society you talk about, that when that extent that I've never met one, any of my male professors in college, five years college I've been to, because I see them through CCTV, not because they are in another country, just because they are in the male-only campus, they go to that extent between men and women that if you go to a restaurant, there is men-only entrance and family entrance, and then they make me buy my own underwear from a man, and they make me hire a driver who's a 
perfect stranger who drive my car, have my phone number, and live with me in the house. So the contradictions are huge. But it was all the price to please the ultra-conservative Islamic uh, or Muslim establishment, um, the religious establishment in Saudi Arabia. I think that <clears throat> reading this book is so interesting because your your storytelling uh, skills are fantastic, and you just really put us. You start us in the, in this really gripping and terrorizing beginning, which we'll talk about a little bit. But but I want to uh, ratchet back to um, the point. One of the things I thought was interesting was how ubiquitous the roadblocks they are to put. Uh, between women and any kind of self-actualization, you were talking about being educated. You you come out of the university, you come out of high school with one of the top scores. You come out of university with the top scores. You get a job, the first woman to get a job in information, but, security, security. Yeah. But you can't get a house. house. This is um, so. Talk about you referred to this about this male permission slip. Explain that whole system because that is really crazy and kind of at the core of the problem. So first of all, shout out to all the side women campaigning to end the male guardianship system. <laughs> July 6 marks the first year of ongoing I am my own guardian. Uh, and we use the car as the symbol of civil disobedience. Wow. <laughs> Very cool. <laughs> yes. And this is the this is first. And the second thing is the education. Uh, the question was about the education that mm -hmm. liberate women. Um, I'm sorry, I lost the, oh. the, the question. Oh, the question is about... Um, uh, the guardianship system. Yeah, the guardianship system. Describe what that is. Uh, it's basically I'm a child, no matter my age, my social, my social status, or my education level. Even if I'm financially independent, I'm still considered a minor before law that is not allowed to take decisions in her life without a written permission or a spoken permission from a male assigned male guardian. That male guardian is like, it could be my father. If I get married, it moves to my husband. If I get divorced, it moves back to my father. Or if I don't have a father, it could be even my brother, younger brother, or even my own son, who's an adult. He could be my own guardian, issuing me permission to leave the country or get my passport. Uh, another problem you encounter with working is getting there. Yes. You talk about yes. the, 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 this book is called Daring to Drive, and you were permitted to drive in the Aramco compound. So talk about the, it must be kind of very bizarre to like live in kind of an almost utopian community over here and then go back to dystopia next door. It was funny. When I first entered Aramco camp, I had no clue we had these camps in Saudi Arabia. And when I, got, when I got my job as a summer student and the driver just passed through the gates, it's a gated community where everything inside is totally doesn't belong to the outside world. And I saw women drivers, women riding bikes, women walking without their abayas, which is the, the black clock that we cover our, we put on over our clothes when we leave the house. And I asked the driver, are we still in Saudi Arabia? And he laughed at me. He said, yes, we're just in Aramco. So Aramco is a government inside the government where the rules of the Saudi government doesn't apply there. They have their own police, their own uh, fire department, their own hospitals, you name it. And because it started as an American company, 
They had their own rules where they allow women to work with men. They kept these rules when it was bought in the 80s by the Saudi government. Otherwise, it wouldn't be successful because you have a lot of expats, 66 nationality live there. You cannot apply the rules outside, inside. And it's not only Aramco, by the way. All the gated communities inside Arabia is the same. So they're all free zones, yes, kind of. Yes, exactly. Oh, my God, yes, that's a nice description. <laughs> free zone. <laughs> so um, talk about uh, you were living inside Aramco. How did you I couldn't learn? live at the start. You couldn't live there at the start. No. Yeah, so talk about that. That was a really interesting battle going. You had to, like, they put you up in a hotel. Then you had to get had somebody's permission. Yes. <laughs> so 2002, the year I joined Aramco, I had to leave my family house in Mecca. And it's like two hours uh, flight from my hometown. And for a woman to rent a hotel room, she needs a mahram or a man. For a woman to rent an apartment, she needs a man. So I couldn't rent one of these. My company had to, my division had to rent a uh, hotel room under the name of the planner of the department. And they asked me to sneak to my room in and out. Yeah, I'm telling you, be careful because the religious police see a woman alone that, that you'll get in trouble. I mean, this is Big just trouble. so craziness. Big trouble. Things change now. Women <laughs> can get a hotel room. We have the first hot, uh, hotel, woman-only hotel in the world that exists in Saudi Arabia, by the way. <laughs> wow. <laughs> we went to that extent, yes. Uh, things did change now, but at the time in 2002, it changed recently, by the way, not a mm-hmm. long time ago. Um so, but at that time, the go- the company itself didn't allow me to live in the compound where women from other nationalities were allowed to live. That was for me not only contradiction, but there was discrimination against your own people. And I wasn't allowed even, even after all the hardship we went through and we rented the apartment outside, I couldn't use the company bus. It's called the employees bus, the city bus, where it takes employees from the city to the compound. Because I was a woman, I was not allowed on that bus. I was kicked out of that bus that passed every day from the from the um, the door of our uh, apartment building. So I, I felt like, oh, my God, as if all the rules existed just to make my life impossible, just to make me fail. That's what this book reads like in many ways. Uh, somebody who's strong-minded, intelligent, hardworking, not going to give up, don't mess with her. Is put in a, in a position where every single roadblock that can be put in front of her will. You know, uh, it's interesting. Uh, your your family was not wealthy. No. So, so talk a little bit about uh, the 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 part of Saudi Arabia that we don't see. Oh, so it's interesting. In the West, people only see those very influential people that come from Saudi Arabia with their fancy cars, with their yachts, and mansions in Florida and in California. While you as a Saudi, you have to work, you have to get a degree and get a job to be able to live. So my family, my dad was a taxi driver, my mom was a tailor, and I lived in Mecca. Mecca is one of the most improvised, is the right word? Impoverished. Impoverished cities in in Saudi Arabia. That's Mm -hmm. the interesting part because we have a lot of illegal immigrants living there. And most people there were really poor in my city. So you grow up. I didn't see the difference until I moved to Jeddah, where more business families, families that run business, where I can see nice, nice cars and nice uh, clothes. And then the comparison started that, oh, my God, there are people in Saudi Arabia who well, are living you, well. But 
but that living wall doesn't have to do anything with the government, really. So my dad, until this day, he lives in an apartment that I, me and my brother pay the rent for his. He doesn't own a house, for example. So you have to work, you have to study and work hard and gain, make your own money to be able to live with dignity in my country. There is no hands out. There are no free checks giving away to us, although it's really wealthy government and they can do this. But you have to really uh, uh, depend on yourself to be able to uh, lift yourself from poverty. Um, other other um, other friends who their, their dads had uh, uh, jobs in the public sector, they were living fine. So it's always the people who didn't have jobs. Their mom and dad worked like my mom and dad. Those are the ones that really suffer the most. Or okay. the families that the woman is the sole owner, uh, earner of the the bread earner of the mm-hmm. family is a woman because it's very difficult for women to find jobs. Now, you're in a country where women aren't allowed to drive. How did you learn to drive? My brother taught <laughs> me how to drive. <laughs> he took me. He gave me a crash course in a parking lot in the Aramco com- compound. I owe a lot to my brother. He's my best friend, and he's a man. He's a Saudi man. So not all Saudi men. Uh, there are a lot of amazing Saudi men who are supporting us, who are behind our back. Um, but when I came to the state in 2009, they wouldn't allow me to apply for the exam if I didn't have a driver license from my country. So I had to go to a class with 16 years old teenagers to and studied there for two months to apply for the exam to get my first driver license at the age of 30. <laughs> that, well, that sounds like uh, challenging. Do you think you'll be joined by, do you think, there'll be more people like you, uh, you know, women your age, stepping up and getting driver's licenses and joining All society? All the society girls I met in the U.S. had their own driver's license. So emancipating to see a woman driving a car, a society woman driving a car. More and more women, especially the millennia, are courageous and fearless and speaking up. My generation was so difficult to find more girls like me who would go out and uh, speak up, don't really care about all the harassment and all the ostracize that we face just for speaking up for the things that are wrong. And it's clearly wrong. And you say it's wrong, but they say don't be the troublemaker. Mm. This is how things are. You cannot change the rule. It's the law. Respect the law. And I say, then the law should respect me. So the millennia are really changing the game in Saudi Arabia. The, the I Am My Own Guardian was started by millennials who are born in the 90s. Well, that's great to hear. It's amazing to hear. Uh, you know, a- as I was reading this book, I was just thinking about, you know, the part that technology plays in this because it plays a, a big part. Uh, the forbidden satellite dish that allow, um, allows you to understand that the world, what a little bit what the world is like. So talk about this, this satellite dish and the problems it caused in your family. Knowledge is really powerful. Mm. And the satellite dish, we only had one, one channel on our TV, channel one. The other channel was channel two, was in English. So people would watch only one channel. When the satellite dish came in the 90s, it was a revolutionary thing to have a satellite dish. And of course... The religious establishment stood, took the ground, took the sermon, the Friday sermons, the imams, to condemn and call that anyone who would have this is cheating God, 
is not too Muslim. So there was this huge war between people who want to have satellite dish in their homes, watch other channels, get to know the world around us, and the people totally against this. They went to the extent to target satellite dish on the rooftops of the apartment buildings with their own shotguns. So the government had to issue a ban on selling and buying satellite dish, and the ban still exists. But what happened, that more and more people smuggled this from the black market, installed it, hid it hidden, and they started watching. Our own home, dad was totally against it. We had to, do, to put it without, I apologize, I know for me, looking back now, it was my dad has, we are living in his house, we're supposed to really obey his, uh, his uh, rules. But at that time, dad was really under the influence of all this uh, ultra-conservative uh, interpretation of that the satellite dish would corrupt your beliefs. Mm-hmm. So we had to do it without telling dad. And it was amazing to watch other channels, listen to other news. Uh, most of the TV's channel one, it was religious uh, programs that aiding the whole time. Finally, we can watch movies. And believe me, art, there is nothing more liberating than art, which is music, which is banned in my country. Uh, art, uh, th- movies, they're really amazing. So the satellite dish was a big, big pa- battle. But the other battle we had was for the Internet. So when the Internet came, it was another battle to have the Internet. And we still, we had to bring internet to the house without that also knowledge because he was against it because he doesn't know what's internet. He heard this internet, if you bring it to the house, then you are in hellfire because internet, non-Muslims only use it. So dad didn't understand what's internet. Dad never been to school. And fear of hellfire and, and the torture of hell played a large part in motivating you towards being a, 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 devout, a devout, devout Muslim. Devout Muslim. And I, I think that's, I mean, you emphasize that. That's an interesting part. I think that's ever an aspect of all fundamental religions, that if you do not obey our very, very strict laws, you will burn in our version of hell uh, or freeze, depending on which version you, you so, get. The God they told us about is angry and he's ready to put you in hellfire for any mistake that you do. And I was always thinking, I don't think God is this angry. God should be merciful as we read about him in Quran. And um, why would he care so much if I block my eyebrows and he banish me from his mercy for eternity? So I always question the God, the version of God they always tell us. Like why would God don't care about my morale, like being honest, being uh, uh, kind to the people around me, being uh, uh, trying to help the others. Why God? So the God they taught us, he cares so much how I look like, what I dress. He cares so much about the, the, the rituals they teach us to do. While this is un-Islamic, really. So the true Islam is really... Pr- protect your spirituality, teach you how to be uh, kind, teach you how to be kind to the other, to your neighbors, to your mom and dad, how to be honest, how to be. This is the God that I loved and I wanted to follow. Not the angry God that banished me in hellfire for parting my hair on the side, for example. You know, um, the the power of your story um, 
is your ability. Part of this is is simply you're flat out a really good writer. The way you organize the story, you start start us in the middle of a very it changed tense, a lot, by the way, the book. <laughs> tense and terrorizing part. I ha- I talk a little bit just about uh, turning the most difficult moments of your life, the most terrible and embarrassing and awful and horrible things that have happened to you and that you yourself have done into an honest document that looks lets you look at yourself but see the the positive outcome, which is this book, the person who wrote this book. Thank you. I didn't see it that way, really. I was just trying to be... We have saying in Arabic, we say when God distributed wealth, no one was happy. But when God distributed brain, everyone is happy with his own brain. <laughs> yeah. So it's it was difficult to be to to confront yourself and say, "No, I was wrong. I did terrible things." So that was the most difficult part to come out and and confess of all the sins I did, I would say, just be trying to follow the strict interpretation of Islam. I think that was and I look at the book when I, when I, my brother was reading it, he was laughing at me and he's just like you should put the story when you found the picture of that singer in my wallet. And he told that and he kicked me out of the house. <laughs> and we laugh about it today, me and him. Mm-hmm. The good thing is we forgive each other. We, we're good friends. But uh, it's interesting that when you reach this, I would say, peace mm-hmm. with your past, mm-hmm. it's very important to bring it back and say, yes, I did these things and I'm facing it today. But I made peace with it. I think it's really important. It's part of being honest with yourself and the people around you. Uh, it's I, not easy, by the way. No. To admit not. you were wrong, brutally wrong, I would say. I, I think that one of the things that, I'm, that made me, this made me think about was that the, these kind of uh, a fundamental religion has a very addictive aspect to it. You, you really are um, enthused. You're, you're encouraged to, to, pursue the most extreme behaviors and, and there's that withdrawal from the fundamental religion too it's so extremism and fu- being fundamentalist is dangerous in any religion in any ideology in any belief mm-hmm. because you two do things you block yourself from the others you are really isolated in your own world and your own belief and you're always thinking everyone is conspiring to corrupt my beliefs and my true faith. And that's a really dangerous idea because that creates us and them. That cuts all the paths between you and reaching understanding of the other people's belief. When you're radical, when you're in this extremist, which you find it, by the way, in any religion, even in the U.S., you find radical people, you find fundamentalists in the U.S. It's really dangerous. Because they do isolate themselves from the other. They, there's no acceptance for the other. Mm. The other part of it, which is the really dangerous part, when it becomes hate to the different, to the other, when you dehumanize them, when you look at them as n- they're non-human, and that means you can hurt them. That's the most dangerous part of being fundamental, fundamentalist. And you find this, by the way, everywhere. One of the things I think that's interesting that kind of carries through in some of the themes we talked about so far is, and you were talking about this too, this idea of paranoia, um, this idea that 
anybody, anything you say, if it's heard by the right person, could be turned against you and that you could be just disappeared from society. I mean, if it's a woman disappears, nobody's going to ask questions. How much did you feel paranoia? No, I didn't have paranoia. Did you, when you were a fundamentalist? Not even when I was fundamentalist. No. We had only the idea of the conspiracy against Islam. Mm. And it was fed by all the wars that were going around. One of them growing up was, as I told you, the Afghan war, Bosnia and Herzegovina, Chechnya, mm-hmm. and the Rohingya in Burma. It was just the, the whole idea of this. But I didn't know at the same time there was a famine in North Korea. There was a protest in, in the Tiananmen Square in China. I didn't know about the Tutsi and Hutu genocide that happened in Rwanda. So there were a lot of things happening around the world that we didn't know about. We were focusing only in the Muslim world. So that's why I created this idea that it's conspiracy against us. But it's this conspiracy against human rights around the world. Mm. And the the, uh, the, thrust, the thrust of, yes. of to gain the power by turning people against each other. I, I was surprised to learn about the extent of the powers of the police in Saudi Arabia, particularly the secret police who who knew that who knew that they existed and that that is the nightmare kafkaesque version of of secret police uh, it's so in Saudi Arabia you cannot voice your views at least growing up because the walls have ears we've always heard this from mom and dad don't speak politics you could go beyond the sun We've always been told that. So you find people, they impose this, uh, I would say, self-filtrate filter that mm-hmm. you cannot talk about certain things. Certain things are taboo, like politics. And the young generation now, they talk about politics, which is the biggest. So the absence of women's rights in Saudi Arabia is nothing but absence of human rights in general. Mm-hmm. So you find uh, human rights activists in Saudi Arabia being prosecuted, sent to jail. So we live in one of the last standing monarchies in the world. We don't have even a constitution written. There are no political rights for men or women. There are no civil rights in Saudi Arabia. So you find it, it's really, it's weaved in the whole society. And the informers, we call them the babies, they're everywhere. Now they're online, they're in your colleagues at work, could be one of the informers. It's really this idea that you're constantly being monitored and you're, words being recorded and could be used one day against you, that is, um, I I think that's the most oppressive part of living in Saudi Arabia. Could you explain what the relationship is between the king and the princes and the religious superstructure of Saudi Arabia, how those two are are connected? Uh, So the religious establishment is very powerful in Saudi Arabia. It's a huge respect to them and their, I would say, wishes when it comes to how to run the country. But the problem happened not in the respect. We all respect the religious establishment. The problem happens when you take their own words, the the literal interpretation of Islamic text, and try to uh, rule a whole country. You cannot rule a country using Islamic text that... They refused to interpret for the last 1,400 years. They used the same interpretation that was 1,400 years ago, today. 
my son cannot visit me in my when I used to live in Dubai for five years, and it's one hour flight from his city because they used Islamic texts from 1,100 years ago when the people used to travel on caravans in the desert and people die en route. So that's the problem we face. When you try to please them on our own, uh, uh, by imposing these rules on us as your own uh, citizens, that's the conflict. Conflict happens here. And our conflict is there should be modern interpretation of the Islamic text that really meets what's happening around us. You cannot use the same text as is from 1,400 years today. That's problematic. That's when the problem happens. That's why women cannot drive today because use, they use religion as an excuse for women cannot drive. The new book by Manal Al-Sharif is Daring to Drive, A Saudi Woman's Awakening. Thank you for joining me, Manal. Thank you for having me. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.